In the 1950s, one of the most popular shows on TV in the United States was the quiz show on NBC, You Bet Your Life. It's Roger Marks in You Bet Your Life. The famous host has lost the exaggerated eyebrows and cigar of his earlier movies, but he's still the master of ad-lib and subversion. Being a guest on his show can change a career. Phyllis Diller, Ray Bradbury, even the founder of Kentucky Fried Chicken, Harlan Sanders, they all appeared on You Bet Your Life. The one, the only. But in 1959, announcer George Fenneman called on perhaps the show's strangest guest. Uh, now, Groucho, I'd like you to meet Ferdinand de Mara, who is better known as the great imposter. During his career, he has actually impersonated 30 different people. I'm sure a tall, square-headed wall of a man walks out on stage. He surveys the stage from small, dark eyes. He easily dwarfs everyone around him. Mr. DeMara, put it there. <laughs> now, why aren't you in jail? Well, I've never done anything completely wrong, bro. Oh. <laughs> I must say you're a very friendly fake, Fred. The great imposter grins. Despite initial appearances, he is friendly, very friendly indeed. I'm Maria Konnikova, and this is The Grift, my podcast about con artists and the lives they ruin. We've heard about card sharks and psychics, art forgers and carnival cheats. But I've saved the strangest and perhaps most disturbing story for last. Ferdinand Damara's story is hard to tell, because for all the times he comes to the surface as himself, on national television, say, joking around with Groucho Marx, there are many more times that he disappears, becomes someone else. That's how he chose to live. But the results were not as amusing as Groucho might lead us to believe. Every once in a while, our culture becomes fascinated with imposters. You know Frank Abagnale? He's a former con artist played by Leonardo DiCaprio in Catch Me If You Can. So Abagnale operated for six years and impersonated eight people. Ferdinand, or as everyone calls him, Fred Damara, puts that to shame. Damara operated for at least four decades. He passed himself off as an engineer, Carl Shelby, a college dean, a cancer researcher, Dr. Cecil Boyd-Haman, a prison guard, a monk, many, many times a monk. He founded a college in Maine. He was a professor of psychology at Gannon College under the name Dr. Robert Linton French. He studied law. He became a hotel accountant. Ben Jones, if you must know. As Frank Kingston, he taught mentally retarded children, as they were then called, and as Martin Goddard, he taught rural school children in Maine and Alaska. And these are just a few of the identities we know of. There was hardly a moment in his life when he wasn't pretending to be someone else, and usually succeeding. Damara's most famous stunt had taken place a few years before he appeared on TV. He'd stolen the identity of someone named Dr. Joseph Sear and joined the Canadian Navy. 
Grafchamark sounded a bit dubious about his guest's supposed exploits on You Bet Your Life. How did you set yourself up as a surgeon on a, on a warship? Uh, actually, I acquired these credentials, obtained a commission, uh-huh. and uh, was sent to Korea as such. You operated on people? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isn't that rather dangerous? Uh, you might say that. Uh-huh. Well, what did the other doctors think about you? Did they watch you operate? Well, let me answer it this way. Uh, while we were in Halifax at the Royal Canadian Navy's headquarters, I gave seminars in internal medicine to the other doctors. And they swallowed this? Oh, yeah, the avid note-takers. The arrogant confessional. It's a stuff so much great, or at least popular, television is made of. Damara, a high school dropout, is telling Groucho that Not only did he lecture real doctors, but he actually operated on people without a medical license. He performed surgery without medical training of any kind whatsoever. Groucho seems desperate to make sure Damara has paid at least some price for his dangerous stunts. Are you in jail in in, uh, Canada? No, no. In the United States? Have you been in jail? Yes, I have been in jail. I spent a year in the Texas State Penitentiary. Well, it's about time, I think. Groucho turns to the audience for a second as he says this. Somebody nails you. What were you in there for? Uh, I was in there as Deputy Warden. (laughs) Actually, he was Assistant Warden, but no matter. Damara's really saying he was able to fool the Texas State Penitentiary, not the most lenient of correctional facilities in the world. He's no prisoner. He's the opposite. Damara is an incredibly successful imposter, and at the apex of his career here, smiling and laughing with a famous comedian on TV. What he doesn't say is that this fame is not to his personal credit. It's due to the one person he managed to take in for the longest period of time. The same person who thought he was exposing Damara to the world. His biographer. Whenever we hear about con artists, liars, crooks, imposters, we tend to think, I would never fall for that. But we do. Most of us, at some point, are taken in by someone who seems very charming at first, but who we later find out is plain toxic. And sometimes, for whatever reason, we let that person stay in our life. That is precisely what happened to Fred DeMara's biographer, a man named Robert Crichton. And the story of how DeMara conned his biographer arguably tops the list of his greatest accomplishments. When Crichton first heard DeMara's story, he was a budding writer. He chanced upon a newspaper account of Damara's exploits, posing as the naval surgeon, the warden, and many others. Crichton was intrigued, to say the least. It's the mid-1950s. Crichton is married with two kids and another baby on the way. Money is tight. The family is broke, living in the West Village. And Crichton becomes a little obsessed with Damara's stories. Damara is compelling, he's fascinating, and he would make the perfect subject for Crichton's first book. 
Crichton tries to get an interview. But Damara keeps giving him the runaround. It seems that every time they're about to get together, something happens to thwart the meeting. Crichton comes to the appointed place at the appointed time, and he waits. And waits. And waits. Usually he stays for over an hour before giving up. He really wants this story. But Damara never shows. Or it seems he never shows. In reality, this is all a part of Damara's grand plan. He's watching Crichton at each of these rendezvous. He hides behind a plant in one hotel, a statue in one restaurant. He tells Crichton all this later. He's looking for not just any biographer, but the right biographer. And the right biographer is one who will keep showing up and keep waiting. A pliable type who is understanding and forgiving the type who can be manipulated. Crichton, of course, knows none of this at the time. He thinks he's being stood up. He's about to give up and start thinking of another book subject, but just then, Damara reaches out. He tells Crichton that he's had a chance of a lifetime. What precisely remains unclear, but it's not strictly kosher, as Damara quickly says. And he's willing to give up the rights to his life story. He wants Crichton to have them. So at last, Crichton gets Damara to sign a contract at Random House. And he starts thinking about how he's going to write this book. He's a journalist by profession, so he assumes the natural way forward is through interviews. Damara begs to differ. Just as Crichton is getting ready to start digging into his background, he bails. He tells Crichton he doesn't want to do a book. He's changed his mind. But Crichton has been given the brush off one too many times. And this time, he has a contract on his hands. So he decides to take a page out of the rogue playbook. When he's giving Damara a lift back to the hotel, he instead keeps right on driving out of the city. That's right. He decides to kidnap Damara in a manner of speaking. If they are on the road together, Damara can't help but talk especially if their itinerary consists of all the places where Damara had taken up false identities. And so they set out. One of their first stops is Kentucky, a Trappist monastery where Damara once posed as a monk. They don't linger. After Damara is recognized, the duo is forced to flee. You see, while he had been a monk there, he'd made off with more than credentials. Some cash and a car had gone mysteriously missing upon his leave-taking. Not everyone has fond memories of the great imposter. In Louisiana, they go to a revivalist tent meeting. Damara finds it next to impossible to resist. From his earliest childhood, he's always had religious leanings. And so, at one point, he gets up on stage and starts cataloging his sins and preaching salvation to the crowd. It's a rousing success. In Tennessee, no one chases them for a change. It's an adventure, and it's a bender. As Creighton soon learns, Damara has a bit of a problem with alcohol. It's not unusual to see him drinking a martini or two before breakfast. And that's just the warm-up light drinking. That trip becomes the basis for two books. Creighton's biography of Damara, the Great Imposter is published in 1959. 
A follow-up, a memoir about the trip called The Rascal and the Road, comes out in 1961. That road trip is also the beginning of a long and complicated friendship. I didn't realize quite how complicated until I visited Robert Creighton's daughters, Sarah and Jen, in Jen's apartment on Manhattan's Upper West Side. I wanted to learn what I could about their father and Damara. Both men had long since died, but I wanted to find someone who might share their memory, if only in part. Jen is there to greet me. Tall, blonde, energetic, and smiling, she seems excited to get started. Ten minutes later, Sarah arrives. She is older than Jen, more grounded. She has the same smile, the blonde hair, but shorter with neat bangs. I wonder if the smile is one they shared with their father. As Sarah makes tea, Jen departs to retrieve the materials they have on their dad. Jen comes upstairs with meticulously labeled files and boxes. There's more downstairs, but this are probably the things that seem very obviously great imposter. Okay, so this is the payday. It's Fred DeMara Correspondence 1. She lays the boxes on the dining room table. Inside, there are reams of correspondence, clippings, letters, evidence. (laughs) All that organization after our mother died. I know. Uh, And that should be enough to start. That's amazing. Um, I'll make some tea. That afternoon, we sit in Jen's apartment, drink tea, dive into the boxes, and reminisce. The younger sister, Jen, doesn't remember Damara, but Sarah certainly does. I remember, first of all, he was huge. That's it. I mean, that was part of the thing, is physically he was gigantic. And our father was very, very, very tall, but Fred was, you know, big and loud. And, you know, so that's also so interesting, because you always think of these convent as being able to sort of slide in. Sarah also remembers how close Damara became with the family, how trusting her parents were, even when it came to their young daughters, even when they knew that Damara was a liar and a con artist. Early in their friendship, they're on the road. Crichton's wife, Judy, is pregnant, and Damara actually manages to convince Crichton to let him, Damara, deliver the baby. Fire the Manhattan OBGYN. Let Damara take over. To us, this seems totally ludicrous. But somehow, Crichton agrees. After all, Damara did okay as a surgeon in the Korean War. Judy is not amused. She refuses. But even though she didn't like him, I do have this memory of he took me when I was about four or five to one of my first movies. Your father or Damara? Damara. Uh-huh. And it was to one of those matinees, there used to be these matinees where children would go and there would be matrons. With and he took me with flashlights. And he took me to see, to see this movie called Darby Gill and the Little People, which is a movie with Sean Connery and leprechauns. Really? And, um, <laughs> I said I'd visit your dreams, and when I make a promise, I keep it. Not one of his classics. <laughs> yeah, you don't hear that mentioned in the filmography. <laughs> and um, uh, 
And he kind of had a fight with the, the matron did not like this big giant man with all these little children. Like there was Were there other grown ups there? I don't I don't No, I think know. the whole just, point was you were supposed to be able to leave your you, child. You would leave your child. Knowing like, that they would be safe. Um, he used to be in adults. the old days in New Honestly, York. And he and he went in with He went went in with me. I never heard that story. That does sound pretty creepy. <laughs> it's kind of creepy. Judy didn't particularly like Damara. So why did she still let him babysit? Here's the story as Damara conveyed it to Crichton. Damara was born into a deeply religious Catholic family. They lived in Lawrence, Massachusetts, an industrial town in decline. But Damara's dad owned a chain of movie theaters the Toomey and Damara Amusement Company. Damara's family has money. The result is that Damara becomes a bit of a snob. As a kid, he's wearing suits, he shines his shoes, and that's not the only reason he sticks out. He's also huge. He'll eventually grow to over six feet and more than 250 pounds. But even as a kid, he towers over his classmates. So he's kind of a pariah. His only friend is his older sister, Elaine. He's not the only one suffering. This is just about the time that the Great Depression hits, and the town is hit as hard as the rest of the country. His dad's business fails, and the family is forced to leave their big, beautiful house and move into what Damara thinks of as a hovel on the edge of town. Things go from bad to worse when Damara's beloved sister, Elaine, slips on a patch of ice and hits her head. She comes home dazed, lies down in bed, and never wakes up. So at the age of 16, after losing his sister and losing the comfortable lifestyle he'd been used to, Damara drops out of school and runs away to a Trappist monastery. You see, it's something he's always dreamed of doing, ever since he read that it's the toughest order of them all. No halfway measures for Damara. From the first, he only wants to associate with the best. Now, the Trappists don't fool around. They take vows of poverty, obedience, celibacy. They believe in the value of manual labor and spending long hours in contemplative silence. Damara spends two years there, And at the end of this ordeal, the monks decide that he's just not cut out to be one of them. He's known to sing and talk when he's meant to be silent, to sneak grapes when he's meant to be harvesting them, to sleep through early prayers when he's meant to be praying. This won't stop him from joining other orders later on, of course, and in future go-rounds leaving on terms of his own, sometimes with petty cash or vehicles in tow, Now, though, he is kicked out without any say of his own. Rejected and utterly alone, Damara laments, he leaves the monastery. And he will regret leaving it, this between actual sobs, for the rest of his life. The Trappists didn't work out, but could he have succeeded as somebody else, in another guise, another identity? another life? This is when Damara decides to try an experiment of sorts. He decides to borrow someone else's identity. Maybe if he can't succeed as Damara, he'll succeed as, oh, Brother Marie Jerome, or Anthony Ignolia. 
or Carl Shelby. Crichton has spent months with Damara one-on-one. Damara is charismatic, he's persuasive, and he has a beautiful story of craving redemption, of things going wrong, but the real, true Damara wanting to do right, to come out from underneath it all, even if it takes time and effort. Crichton honestly believes that Damara is remorseful, that he can be reformed, even after all the lying, conning, and drinking. While he was writing The Great Impostor, Crichton found himself constantly doing favors for Damara, getting him out of pinches, footing the bill for various escapades. Of course, all those favors were essential to get Damara to cooperate while Crichton was writing the book, because it's not easy to get Damara to cooperate and keep cooperating. But it doesn't let up. After the break, how Damara went from being the subject of a lifetime to a subject that just wouldn't get out of his biographer's life. So back to our story. The Great Imposter becomes Crichton's first book, and it's quite the glamorized version of Damara's life. The first, more realistic draft was actually rejected by Random House. Damara wasn't enough of a hero. And while initially Crichton had reservations about changing too much, he came around after giving it some thought. Damara was sympathetic, and if you didn't know him and told the unvarnished story, you might not realize just how much good was in him. Crichton was an incredibly kind man. He saw the best in everyone, even in the worst of us. So Crichton polished Damara up, played up the glamour, played down the actual chicanery. And when The Great Imposter came out in 1959, it instantly became a bestseller. Crichton and Damara hit the media circuit. Newspapers, TV appearances. They even make it onto The Tonight Show. Fred Damara, The Great Imposter, becomes a household name. And for a while, he basks in the limelight. He even has a role in a real live Hollywood film. The hypnotic eye. Terror loose in the city streets. A strange animal magnetism that drives women to do things hidden deep within their subconscious and bringing violence. But once the paid media appearances dry up, Damara finds himself strapped for cash, as always. And now, since people know who he is, it's much tougher to go about business as usual. It's hard to pass yourself off as someone else when your face is all over the media. Meanwhile, Crichton's writing career has taken off. Universal Studios options The Great Imposter for a film adaptation. Damara is to be played by Tony Curtis. Well, here's a fact, Major Turdell. Most of the guys I took the test with were college graduates with strings of degrees after their names, and I beat them. I beat them all. I tell you, Cindy, it just doesn't Once Damara sees that the film is taking off, he hires a Hollywood lawyer and sues Robert Crichton. That's right. He sues the man who has made him into a celebrity. At first, Crichton is furious. And he does what any writer does. He lets it all out on the page. He hammers out pages and pages detailing the favors he's done for Damara, the tabs he's picked up, the money he got Damara for all those media appearances. He's stood up for Damara. He's paid for his second chances. 
He's put his own name on the line for the sake of the great imposter. But he hasn't altogether forgotten all of the not-so-nice things Damara has done in return. Suing him, betraying him, betraying others, lying, cheating, stealing. He writes, and I quote from his unpublished pages of angry ranting, that he has made a hero out of a bag of guts and that he's more than prepared to let that bag of guts out into the world if need be. It doesn't look like Crichton ever sent this letter. What he did send was much milder. No threats to reveal whatever sins Demaro was still hiding. Instead, he wishes him the best and sends his hopes that he's had a chance to calm down, to rest, to recover from the whole Hollywood thing. He even apologizes for this far milder harangue, as he calls it. But at the same time, he, our father was soft-hearted. And oh, undoubtedly, Damara was able to work a lot of... operate on him pretty effectively. And, and our father was the type of guy who would have believed that he was doing it out of good. Legally, Crichton is completely in the right. But personally... He feels sorry for Damara, even a little guilty, because Crichton did get a good deal out of the story. He's made money and a name for himself. So Crichton tries to get Universal to pay Damara more, but they don't want anything to do with him, naturally. So Crichton hatches another plan. He doesn't actually have that much money to give to Damara, He's supporting a large family, and he's been making next to nothing for years. Even though the book sells well, the family is far from well off. So he starts writing his memoir, The Rascal and the Road, and he arranges for Damara to get some of the profits. Damara assures Crichton that he is out of the con game. He wants Crichton to believe that all of his efforts have been put to good use. Crichton has paid his way through an actual religious seminary, after all. Damara wants him to know he won't squander the chance. He moves to California and even begins to live under his own name. He starts a ranch for wayward boys to help others like the lost soul he once was. So he tells Crichton. And Crichton becomes Damara's champion. Over and over, he vouches for Damara, comes to his defense whenever he comes under fire. He writes him reference letters saying how trustworthy he is, how genuine is his passion for religion. He's a pretty remarkable person, Crichton tells anyone who will listen, and he is capable of remarkable work, when people trust him. It's not that Damar is a bad actor. It's that his life circumstances just didn't go quite as planned. Crichton can't help but help Damara. Crichton trusts him in spite of his better judgment. He desperately wants to believe that he can save the great imposter from himself. That is the power of the con artist's charm, his charisma, his allure, his hold over people. Back with Sarah and Jen, Robert Crichton's daughters, Rifling through Crichton's old papers, I find a yellowed letter. So, 
that camp for boys that he said he was going to stay at for a while and that your father assumed he would. Yeah. So th here's a letter from Robert Sheehan at the Sprague Electric Company. Um, several months ago on a local TV program, Mr. DeMar stated that the great imposter no longer existed. He had found his mission in life. Last Monday night, it was announced that he had left without notice. The boys in the camp had been sent back to foster homes or to the camps for wayward boys once they came. Hmm. His disappearance may be related to criticism of his beating of some of the boys and an overt implication of unnatural affection toward them. Oh, wow! Wow! Damara ran multiple schools for boys. And as Robert Sheen implies in that letter, there were rumors that Damara may have been a pedophile. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think our mother at one point, uh, she sort of implied, she once said something that, I'm, as I've been saying, I've been trying to remember, because it wasn't like pederast, but it was close. It was basically. I don't know. I, bet, I mean, I, at the risk of killing the story, I think that's a possibility. That, that was her fear, or that yes. was, yeah. you know. And that's why I like the matron story. It's very creepy. I know. According to a local newspaper, Damara denied ever kissing any of the boys on the lips or fondling them. He said he tried to promote a father-son relationship and admitted holding them on his lap and kissing them on the cheek and forehead. The pederasty accusations cropped up a few times in different places, but the charges never stuck. Damara, like the best con artists, seemed made of Teflon. It didn't hurt that after Crichton's book and movie, he had prime Hollywood legal representation. Even after this episode, Crichton is still friends with Damara because there are no indictments, because Crichton can't be 100% sure that Damara had molested those boys, he can choose to ignore it, just as he'd chosen to excuse all of Damara's other bad behavior. But I think it was a willing suspension of right. disbelief in the sense that our father was very aware of grifter culture. Mm -hmm. He was not a rube. So, but he, what he was, was a great storyteller right. who loved a great story. So in a way, it's possible that he was complicit with Damara in seeing this is a tremendous story that he's yeah. creating. But how much our father totally bought into it is hard to say. But I am sure that he did con our father to a certain degree. Well, and, if he kept asking for money, yeah, yeah that's yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah. Eventually, though, Crichton did give up on Damara. I think the fact that um, Damara kept hitting him up for money in, in, in time, it's not just that it wore my father down, it kind of hurt his feelings. Yeah. He felt like he, was, he had been doing his best for this man. And it didn't help. He realized, finally, that Damara would always be the great imposter. And that left Crichton a little brokenhearted. While fact-checking this story, I looked into the details of Damara's childhood. And remember his sister Elaine, whose death was a catalyst for Damara's dropping out of school, his drifting into a career as an imposter? Well, there's no evidence that she ever existed. 
don't know if Fred Damara had any remorse for hurting people, ruining lives. I doubt it. He did it for too long. And he did it with far too much pleasure. Some might go so far as to call his behavior psychopathic, lacking in any conscience, in guilt, in empathy, in any of the emotions that might make another man balk at, say, conducting surgery without even a high school degree. Who knows? He might have been. It's unethical to give a diagnosis without ever having met the man. He certainly fits some of the criteria. But psychopath or no, Damara was definitely Machiavellian and narcissistic. Machiavellian in that he was able to manipulate so many people to do his bidding and keep doing his bidding even when they knew him for the imposter he was. No one more so than Crichton. And Damara was narcissistic in thinking himself entitled to whatever he wanted. Degrees, jobs, opportunities. The true narcissist isn't just self-centered. His defining trait is the feeling that he deserves the world. And so he'll help himself to it. Out of all of the con artists I encountered, none had as many chances to go straight, so to speak, as Damara, and he squandered each and every one of them. Because at his core, I don't think he ever wanted to go straight. He didn't want an actual job. He wanted power over people, the power of deception, the power of knowing he was controlling your life. And he wanted it with the sheer gift of his personality, not with any hard work on his part. Here's the truth. He wasn't educated. He wasn't particularly talented at anything other than deception. When he went on Groucho's show, he couldn't actually answer elementary questions, like the definition of a homonym. An opposite meaning. No, no, that's wrong. No, I still think opposite. That stint as a surgeon? Well, we know one thing, and one thing only. The one time he operated on Korean soldiers, no one died under the knife itself. But they were whisked off immediately after. Who knows how many of them died afterward? My guess is quite a few. After all, most of what Damara did was ply them with antibiotics and anesthesia. They couldn't complain because they were knocked out. Yet somehow, people like Crichton still believed in him and believed in his abilities. Damara was a master at manipulating others. But when it came to himself, he wasn't quite as able to exert control. To the end, he had a self-destructive streak. He died of heart disease and complications from diabetes in 1982. His doctor described him as the most miserable, unhappy man I've ever known. It makes a certain amount of sense. If you can no longer do the thing that gives you that rush, you lose yourself. It's like an addict who suddenly loses access to the substance that gives him pleasure. Miserable and unhappy seems about right. But here's what I want to add. I'm fairly certain his hundreds of victims ended up even more miserable in the end. Some of them probably ended up dead. Some 
perhaps molested by someone they trusted. The unvarnished truth? Underneath his glamour, Damara ruined lives. And we'll never know quite how deep his deceptions run. That is the true power of the grift. The Grift is produced by Adelia Rubin, Shoshi Shmulevitz, and Jacob Smith. Our editor is Julia Barton, and our fact checker is Jen Schwartz. Ben Levin composed our music. Special thanks to Mia Lobel, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers. 